Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So I used to work in journalism. And uh, one thing that journalists like, we sort of get caught talking about just the newest thing or the most different thing than, than what's been going on. And it's really hard to cover long-term trends in journalism. And one trick, that, so, so like you'll, you'll hear a lot about a particular incident, but you won't hear as much about, say, climate change. One way that journalists get around this is the anniversary. It allows, whenever an anniversary comes up, journalists can say, oh, it's the hundredth year of this, and therefore we can uh, talk about the long-term trends that have cha- changed the region since this seminal event, uh, thus allowing us to sort of get around um, the, the, the day-to-day news grind uh, and talk about these sort of long-term issues. And I mention all of this because uh, we just passed the 100th anniversary of the ratification in secret of the Sykes-Picot Treaty. Uh, those who don't know, uh, this was an agreement between a, a mid-level French diplomat uh, and a mid-level British diplomat, Francois-Georges Picot and Mark Sykes, respectively, to basically divide up the Arab region of the Ottoman Empire between into a British zone and a French zone. And because it's the 100th anniversary, a lot of people have been talking about how this basically created these artificial countries and, and wrecked the region ever since. And with Iraq and Syria both in higher degrees of turmoil than usual, uh, this has been in the news a lot lately. Sort of it's, like, it's all the British and the French to blame. My guest today uh, has actually written an, an interesting post arguing that it was actually a different agreement that uh, really set the stage uh, for Iraq as we know it today and many of the issues that it has today. It was a, instead a British and a French, or sorry, a, uh, a British and a Turkish agreement that happened several years later. And uh, I think talking a little bit about this and about where Iraq is today will help, uh, will help clarify some things. Uh, at least I'm hoping so. I'm delighted to introduce uh, my guest, Joel Wing. He uh, is the... Um, the driving force behind the blog Musings on Iraq. That's at musingsoniraq.blogspot.com, which I highly recommend you check out. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Just so, working away. <laughs> so, um, so let's start with this Sykes-Picot post, because this is a really interesting idea, because it's really easy it's almost too easy to blame the British and the French and their machinations at the end of World War One for uh, for causing all of the problems that Iraq and Syria face today. But but you argue that it was this 1926 agreement between the Turks and and the Brits instead that really kind of laid the the foundation for modern Iraq as we know it today. Perhaps you could talk about that. Yeah. So I mean, there's no denying that the the European powers wanted to divide up the Ottoman Empire after World War One. So the British and French did have all these plans, and they did get different countries out of the Ottomans. But it wasn't exactly the Sykes-Picot that did it. Uh, all you have to do is look at a map of Sykes-Picot, and it looks nothing like the modern Middle East. So it's really easy to discard that if you go into the details. And as for Iraq, um, after the peace treaty was signed, ending the the war, the first world war between the Ottomans and the British, the British still had designs on part of it. So they were up to about to uh, Kirkuk in northern Iraq, and then after the peace treaty was signed, they actually kept on moving. The war ministry told them to keep on going. They took the Mosul, which is a more northern city, 
and that was after the peace treaty was signed. The Turks always demanded that the Mosul, which is a whole uh, province of the Ottomans, was theirs. Um, there's another treaty that ended the war, and then there's all this disputes and fighting over it. And it was actually the Turkish War of Independence, where the Turks were actually able to push um, the British farther south. It set the, the basic border of, of Iraq. So there's actually a whole number of agreements. There's the, the peace treaty at the end of the war. There's another one that broke up the Ottoman Empire. And then there was finally an agreement in 1926 that set the northern border um, between what became Turkey and what became Iraq. And there's actually a whole bunch of other disputes. So um, there's a border dispute between um, Iraq and Syria. You had these Arab nationalists who actually wanted to kick out the British out of the Middle East, and so there's all this fighting along that border, and then that led to one agreement. Um, the Saudis were actually pushing north and moving into Iraq. Uh, that led to another agreement that set that border. And, of course, you had the Iraq-Kuwait border, which was disputed for years and years and years, and that wasn't finally you know, figured out till the Gulf War in the 1990s. And then the eastern border was disputed as well between Iraq and Iran, and that wasn't finally resolved until the Iran-Iraq War. So you have a whole bunch of different agreements that included British as imperial power, but also all these other forces in other countries all arguing over the border. So it's actually a whole number of things that set Iraq to where it is today. It, it strikes me that, that, I mean, it's not like in 1918 every region of the world that had borders redrawn in the aftermath of World War I got necessarily good borders or wise borders or borders that prevented conflict from resuming. It's more that, that I mean, and it, like you say, it took several years and, and, and in some cases decades to define the borders of Iraq as, as they were. Um, but it's, it's more that, that Iraq and Syria were, were created in, in the the years that followed World War One, and never had a chance to sort of coalesce into to identity-based states that were clearly defined along ethno-nationalism the way that, for example, most European states did, where, where after the Second World War, you know, or after the fall of communism and the, and the, the fallout of, of, uh, of the, the collapse of Yugoslavia, these states became viable nation states with a clear sense of national identity and and uh it it seems like with Iraq and and Syria the 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 respective histories of the two countries prevented that from happening in a way just because of the nature of the governments and the nature of the kind of regional turmoil that they found themselves in yeah i think it was a most of the the post independence governments in Iraq, because you know Iraq is a very very diverse country, right? I mean, everybody knows about the Sunni Shia difference between Muslims. So you've got Arabs and Kurds, you've got Turkmen, you've got all these different Christian groups. You know, you've got Yazidis, you've got this whole mix of people. And what happened is after independence, a lot of the the governments define themselves as Iraq is an Arab country. And they had different ideas, like, you know, pan-Arabism was really big, Arab nationalism, the Ba'ath Party, this idea of Arabism and socialism and stuff like that. But still, the dominant narrative of the country was that we are an Arab country. And that right there creates all kinds of problems, because that obviously doesn't include, you know, the Kurds are about 20% of the population that excludes them. And you have all these different ideas. Um, he had a, a sort of an exclusionary vision of the state instead of an inclusive one. And right there from the beginning, that caused a lot of problems. It played out in all different ways. So really, I think that's a fault of the governments that were formed after independence. 
It also strikes me that this British-Turkish agreement, that it's funny because the, the Turks have this ongoing problem with their Kurdish population and for a long time refused to acknowledge that Kurdish identity was a real thing. Um, the part that they were claiming was the predominantly Kurdish region. So basically they, they were, you know, the, the, the phrase that, that, that likes to get thrown around is mountain Turks, that they're just a, a, an offshoot of, uh, of Turks and that they should fall under Turkish hegemony and that that's what they were really going for was what would today, if Iraq was broken up, be Kurdistan. Yeah, I know. But the, I think the main part that they wanted was the city of Mosul. Mosul was a really big urban area during the Ottomans time. It was a trade hub and everything like that. You know, even then the, the, the Kurds back then, you know, you have different periods of history where they have different alignments. Um, and there's obviously lots of Kurds in between what became Turkey and what Mosul is. But I think their main claim was the city of Mosul, which was uh, mostly Arab, although there's other groups and there's Turkmen there, there's Kurds and everything like that. But I think their main claim is the city of Mosul was what they were really after because it was such an important trade hub for them. And, you know, the, the, the issue of the Kurds, I think, came up pretty much a little bit later. Um, so, so now, now talking about, uh, let, let's fast forward to, to today and talk a little bit about what you've described as the spring bombing campaign. And the, you, you argue that these things tend to sort of go in seasons that, that they, they commonly take place during Ramadan and that there are certain times of year where, um, where there's, there's more terrorism and there's more, uh, violence and instability. Uh, why is that? So like you said, there's two historic, ever since 2004, right after the U.S. invasion, there's the spring offensive, which sort of flows into, there's a little break, and then Ramadan, which usually falls during the summer. And you can sort of say it's the better weather, but the winters in Iraq really aren't that bad. So I don't know if it's really weather-based or something else. You know, Obviously, Ramadan is because it's an important Muslim holiday. The spring offensive, I'm not sure whether it's weather or just the time of year, whatever, but ever since 2004, they've always had these offensive. And before it was all the different insurgent groups. Right now, all those other groups have fallen away, and there's basically only the Islamic State left. And they're just keeping up this tradition. And so every time we have these, these two bombing campaigns, it's just highlighted by lots of different suicide bombers, lots of car bombs. It's basically a terrorist offensive rather than more insurgent or conventional kind of attacks. And that's what Iraq is going through right now. So there's a whole wave of bombings in Baghdad um, in recent days. You know, you've had a couple of days where there's been over 100 casualties, which hasn't happened for years. They've also been bombing southern Iraq. So, for example, Muthana province got hit. It was the first time it was bombed in maybe three or four years. Um, Basra got bombed. Dikar got bombed. So you're hitting... A lot of places that have not been bombed for years and years and years because of this new campaign. Yeah, it's it's interesting because because you also have fighting season in Afghanistan, but that's very weather related. It's just like the yeah. winter is just impassable. But but in this, it's it seems it seems to be unrelated. It's, it just seems to be an arbitrary decision. Like oh, it's spring, we're gonna go, we're gonna go uh, fight now. But I do think that this particular one. Is highlights the changing nature of Islamic State. I mean, see, see what you let me bounce this idea off you and see what you think. Um, Islamic State, unlike almost all of those other insurgent groups, really uh, it, it, it claims territory and it operated kind of like a state at first. It was uh, trying to expand uh, its territory and it was 
it was holding territory and therefore it, it wasn't doing these kinds of asymmetric attacks as much as it was conquering territory and enslaving the population or evicting them or, or all the t- terrible things that they were doing. Now that they're on the defensive and they're losing and they're subjected to airstrikes and, and basically the balance of power has turned against them, they're starting to behave more like a terrorist group and saying, okay, if you're going to do this, we can't, we no longer have the means to stop you. We, we've already lost several cities. We're probably going to ultimately lose Mosul and, and Fallujah. They're, they're fighting in Fallujah literally as we record this. So instead, we're going to hit you in this way that you can't stop. It's, we're we're going to do this asymmetric stuff, and we're going to make it hurt in the same way that they targeted Paris, in the same way that they targeted Brussels, in the same way that they targeted Russian civilians on that that uh, that airliner that was crashed out of Sharm el Sheikh. Uh, they're they're targeting their Shiite enemies in in the south of Iraq, and basically saying, "Look, we can hit you. We're going to raise the cost of you taking back these ter- this territory from us." We're going to hit you in areas that are not even part of this battlefield, and we're going to make it hurt. Does that that does that make sense? Yeah, they're definitely, and you could see the shift actually a couple months ago, um, the first couple months of, of this year. They're really most of the attacks have skyrocketed in Baghdad, um, and it's not just terrorism. I mean, the war after the war, you know, the Islamic State way overreached in Iraq. There's just no way they're going to be able to hold that much territory. So, you know, it was just inevitable There's when Baghdad got its act together and started reforming the military and got U.S. support and Iranian support as well, they're going to evict them from Holland territory. But you can already see the Islamic State shifting to not only terrorism, but just, you know, insurgent attacks, big headline-grabbing raids. You know, they, there was a big shootout in northern Baghdad that didn't get that much coverage at all in the Western press, but got in the Iraqi press. They had a raid on Abu Ghraib and stuff like that. So I think... Once they get evicted, it's going to be like pre-Mosul Iraq, where you've got a really lively insurgency, big mass casualty bombings. And that's going to be a lot more difficult because the Iraqi forces have not proven to be really good at handling that. So that's going to be like the war after the war, which is back to what it used to be, basically. And what I I start to think about what it's what is going to happen when I mean, presuming that Islamic State is is ultimately driven out of of most of Iraq what's going to happen. And it's just really difficult. I mean, we haven't really seen a lot of evidence that there's a political space for the Sunni minority in the government. Even even with with uh, the, the current prime minister, Haider al-Abidi, uh, being much more open and conciliatory in his rhetoric, it just seems like, I just try to imagine what, for example, the, the population of Fallujah or, or what the population in Anbar province is going, what they can possibly expect from this government and how long before some other kind of uprising takes the place of Islamic State, which was neither the first nor likely the last. Yeah, you know, the, the big problem is that Iraq politically is dysfunctional and the Sunnis suffer from that almost more than any other group. There's so many different factions of Sunni political parties. Um, and even what happens is even when reforms are offered to the Sunni population, you have whole factions of Sunni parties who just reject it out of hand because they do not want to have the other side gain a victory. It's like zero-sum thinking. So, you know, even Maliki offered some reforms when he was in office. body has offered some. So you've got really split and divided Sunnis who can't agree within them, amongst themselves and do not want to see to be giving anything to the Shia parties. And then the Shia parties 
are really split too. You have some factions who just refuse to give anything to the Sunnis and the other ones are more, you know, concessionary. But you've just got so many divisions on both sides. It's really hard to see anything progressing after war like you're talking about. So, for example, Abadi offered this idea of the National Guard where we're going to integrate Sunni fighters and different tribes, groups, and all these different things in the military. And it just got to a standstill where nobody can agree on what's the next step. You know, and that, that's happened before and other times before that. So politically, even if the war wasn't going on, politics is such a mess in Iraq. You know, I can't really see how that's going to be solved anytime soon. And that kind of leads to these this this interest because I mean a lot of a lot of people simplistically paint it as this sort of monolithic, you know, Kurds, Sunnis, Shia, and and that's you know, and that's it basically. You have these sort of three parties, and the Shia are the biggest, and so they control the government, and the Kurds are the most sort of organized, and so they 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 have a de facto autonomy, but they can't really ask for independence because that would destabilize the geopolitical order, even though they pretty clearly want independence but each of these parties has or each of these groups has lots of divisions within it and i th- i think we saw this with the storming of the green zone and then the storming of the green zone again by followers of Muqtada al-Sadr this interests me because i mean first of all the fact that they could do this shows how how bad things have gotten but second of all it's it 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 raises this interesting thing Muqtada al-Sadr has really sort of evolved he's still this sort of kind of i hate to use the term rabble rouser but he he he, he kind of i mean he still has this this kind of populist edge but he's he's really changed from being a sectarian figure into more of an an anti-corruption crusader his his role has evolved and it sort of shows both the splits between different shia groups but also how and people don't talk about this, but politicians themselves can change through the course of their experience. Like Muqtada al-Sadr now is very different than the Muqtada al-Sadr that we saw in, in 2004. Yeah. You know, the part of the Sadr trend that started with his father is always this really strong streak of Iraqi nationalism. You know, and that ebbs and flows depending on the situation. So, you know, for example, he always has all this strong rhetoric against Iran, and yet, you know, they work together with his militia, and he goes there, and he still, you know, has relations with them. So it ebbs and flows, and he always aspired to be a national leader of Iraq. He wanted to use his militia and his base in order to become this big national leader. The problem with Sadr, I think, is that he is so unpredictable. I have no idea whether that guy ever thinks long-term or not. So the taking of the green zone was a, a perfect example, you know. He had this big plan, we're going to take over the green zone, we're going to put all this pressure on the government, on the different political parties and the prime minister himself. And I really literally do not know whether he thought beyond that because taking over the green zone is just totally obliterated parliament. I have no idea when they're ever going to get back together and be able to actually do any work because you've got all these different people. You have the Kurds left Baghdad completely after the takeover because some of their members got attacked and they're talking about we're not going to come back until we get all these concessions. You've got a whole another big block of politicians who are boycotting and trying to form this reformist trend who are against Abadian's reforms, actually. And then you've got all these other groups bickering, uh, you know, and so I don't think he ever thought out what was going to be the next step, which I think has been his problem all along. You know, he takes these big, bold actions, you know, whether it's fighting the Americans or things like that, and it gets them the standing with the, you know, the Iraqi street. 
and I just don't know what he's going to do next. He's just so unpredictable. I don't know what's going on. So he's got this one trend, like, I'm going to be a Iraqi nationalist. I want to be a leader. And then just this constant short-term thinking completely undermines him again and again and again. I heard him described as the Donald Trump of Iraq. Except that <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he's a billionaire, but uh, I'm not yeah. sure if Trump is either. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but but this sort of, I mean, it, 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 it showed how a lot of this is just people with power and influence not wanting to give it up because the things that he was demanding was this, this an end to corruption and specifically the, the creation of this sort of technocratic cabinet. And Abadi had, had, had agreed to do this, but he couldn't because people, you know, various factions in parliament were blocking him because they wanted their people in there because that's part of, the, the way that they exercise power. So a lot of this is really about just elites and people with influence jockeying for position which within a government that's just going to be overwhelmingly Shiite anyway and everyone just sort of knows it just because of the, the, the population of Iraq is overwhelmingly Shia and people vote along sectarian lines in basically all of the elections. Uh, so a lot of this a, a lot of this is really about about individuals within uh, within the parliament. And not about sectarianism per se. Yeah, the 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 fight over the new government is definitely an example of that you saw splits. I mean, you know, there's all, like you talked about. There's all these different factions within the Sunni parties and the Shia parties and the Kurd parties. And there's a lot of issues though where they come together as a block and agree on everything. And a body really threatened the the kind of quota system and the way the government's been run by proposing a technocratic government. It, which was really badly planned. Abadi, I think, is just a really, really bad politician. He does not talk to any other groups, even his allies. You know, one of the big points that people complained about Malik is that he only talked with his close advisors, and he was really power-hungry. So Abadi isn't that kind of power-hungry, cutthroat kind of politician, but he still only talks to his small group of advisors. So whenever he comes out with these plans, all the other parties go, we didn't know anything about this. You haven't built up any kind of, you know, talks with anybody to build any kind of consensus, and you just drop it on us and expect it to be passed, which doesn't work in any kind of political system. So he has really big problems with that. Sadr, on the other hand, I think wanted to become like a kingmaker in Iraq. He wanted to make a body dependent upon him. You know, like, I have all these blocks, people in parliament, and I'll support you if you, like, back me, and I'll be able to realign politics and things like that. And then you've got a whole other group of people who just want to keep the system as is because the quotas and everything is the way they maintain power, like you talked about. And even if a body was able to make this big reform, he would be the only partisan there. All these new ministers would be loyal to him instead of all these different political parties, which creates a whole another political controversy. So the whole thing is just a mess. And it's just another example of how dysfunctional Iraqi politics are. So I'm sort of searching for ways out here. And I see I see venal politicians, and I see serious sectarian cleavages, and uh, parties, to, and sort of identity-based regions. And part of, in some ways, it looks kind of like the Balkans. And the way the, 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 the things were resolved in the Balkans was largely through partition. No one in Iraq except the Kurds really talks about the idea of partition, in part because, I mean, it seems like both Sunni and Shia leaders want to keep the country together and control all of it themselves. <laughs> but, but no one apart from the Kurds 
is really talking about the idea of partition, but through their actions, it seems almost like they're making it more likely, especially the way that Islamic State has behaved in the predominantly Sunni regions and the, and the, the scale of, of ethnic cleansing and atrocities that they've committed there. They've effectively, I mean, the, the country has become really divided regionally. Is that the direction that this could ultimately be heading if things don't improve? I definitely think Kurdistan sometime will have independence. I think it's going to be way off, though. Um, Kurdish politicians, especially Barzani and the Kurdish Democratic Party, like to talk about independence, especially when problems come up within Kurdistan. I still think that's a way off because of a whole number of political and economic issues. Um, Within the rest of Iraq, people always talk about partition, but I really can't see that happening. Uh, Even with all the problems and all the divisions and the war, both Sunnis and Shia Arabs still have an idea of Iraqi nationalism and Iraqi identity. It's just formulated in different ways. They still believe in the state and the unity of the government and the unity of the country, but how they see each one of those is, is formed differently, and that's been created since the 2003 invasion. And you actually have alliances going on. So, for example, Speaker Jabori, who's a Sunni, and you actually have a couple different uh, governors in Sunni provinces like the governor in, in Ambar and the governor in Saladin are actually aligned with a body who's a, a, a Shia. So you've got cross-sectarian alliances going on and you have all these other problems. But I think the idea of, of Iraq sticking together is still very strong, although it's full of difficulties and full of problems. What 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 concerns me most is that that overwhelmingly people vote along identity-based lines like I remember back in like it was the 2010 elections, if I recall, where it was right after the surge and the whole idea had been to open up this political space and uh, a, a non-sectarian party got the most votes of any party. But they still only got about 24 percent of the vote. I think it was 24.2 percent. And Maliki's extremely uh, sectarian Dawa party got 24% of the vote and was able to maneuver to, to, to get power. And so, and if you look down the line, it was like almost everybody else voted along sectarian lines. So it was even after the surge, even after the Anbar awakening, even after uh, um, the, the, the Sadr militia had been kind of uh, sidelined and, and Al Qaeda in Iraq had been defeated. You still had people voting largely along identity based lines. And that's just not, good for a country when everyone votes along it when when your election is a census that's the thing that concerns me of all the things about iraq that's the thing that that maybe maybe the security situation should should concern me more but but looking long term that's the thing that concerns me most about about iraq's future and its identity yeah i think that's partly true i but i think that's a post 03 trend in iraq politics i don't think that existed as much before so you have Different pools of identity. I mean, you can be loyal to your province, to your tribe, to your sect, to being Arab or Kurd or different things like that. You have all these different identities that you can pull on. And obviously, since 03, because of the way the government was formed and what happened, sectarian has, sectarianism has become the dominant theme in Iraqi politics. That doesn't mean it can't turn to something else You know, later on. I think the real issue besides sectarianism is I think you really need people to believe in the government and want to participate. I think that's been the big problem and what led to rebirth of the insurgency. So after the surge, 
the 2009 provincial elections, I was really, really optimistic about Iraq, the most I've ever been. You had a huge surge in Sunnis coming out to vote. And it didn't matter that they were voting for Sunni parties. The fact that you had such large participation, you know, the insurgency had basically been defeated and was on the decline. You had real hopes for people to join in. And if people are participating in politics, you don't have such support for the insurgency. And then the Maliki government, you know, ruined that, basically. The 2010 elections, because of all these different political moves, wrecked that. And I think that's what led to the insurgency being reborn. People didn't care about the government. They didn't trust the government. Lots and lots of people hated Maliki with a passion. And that led to armed struggles. So I think sectarianism is definitely a problem. But you need to worry about, I think, after IS is kicked out of most of Iraq and you back to something more stable, you have to try to get Sunnis to believe in the government can participate. Otherwise, insurgency is going to come back again. I think that's a bigger issue than sectarianism. I have one more question that 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 has just been on my mind a lot in, in recent. A lot of times, there's this narrative that that the this I don't want to say that the surge worked, but that it 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 opened up that it reduced violence. It opened up this political space, and then. Maliki ruined everything and then and we left and we left too soon and if we had stayed then there would have been more stability it's always a counterfactual to know this sort of thing but just looking at the dynamics of Iraq in 2011 it always looked to me like it was it was a wagon with the wheels coming off and whether we had stayed or gone things were going to start deteriorating and if we'd stayed we would have gotten blamed and if we left then we would also get blamed um, I'm curious what, what you think about what would have happened if, I don't want to say like, let's say John McCain was president, but like, let's, let's say, let's say that the U S administration had been insistent upon negotiating the status of forces agreement in 2011 and, and not gotten hung up on a few details about American soldiers being tried in Iraqi courts and that sort of thing and said, no, we are staying around and we're going to iron this. We're going to, we're going to hammer this out. Uh, even if there's political embarrassment to go around, if we had stayed, would things have deteriorated anyway, especially with the Syrian civil war going on or, or would things have, do you think, uh, would things have been more stable with an American presence? You know, that's really difficult. I think security-wise, it could have been a lot better. The United States provided all kinds of support for the Iraqi forces that just disappeared as soon as the Americans left. So you've got intelligence gathering, you've got surveillance, you've got counterterrorism operations, logistics, which is still really, really bad for the Iraqi forces. You had so much support that was suddenly taken away. They just could not fill that vacuum no matter what. So I'm, I'm almost positive that... In terms of security, it would have been better. It, that doesn't mean the Islamic State wouldn't have made a big comeback. You've had this big surge and stuff like that. Um, but militarily, it definitely would have been better. Politically, it really depends. I mean, there's been a lot of books that talked about how after the surge, he had Ambassador Crocker, was a really somebody who really knew the region, was really in touch with a lot of the Iraqi politicians. After he left, the ambassador that came after that was just horrible did not really care about politics, did not listen to people on his staff. Are we talking about uh, Christopher Hill here? Yeah, so I think... The, the thing about Christopher Hill is that... So I, I, was with, um, I, was, I was with a Japanese newspaper covering United Nations headquarters when he was the envoy 
to North Korea. He wasn't the ambassador because we have no ambassador, but he was basically the U.S. lead on the six-party talks. And he was really good. And then from that, he was reassigned. This is one of these things that, that, that the State Department does and, and that, that happens to ambassadors. They get reassigned to totally different regions of the world. Yeah. Yeah, so it it just goes to show, and he didn't speak he didn't speak Arabic. He didn't have have experience in the in the region. It just goes to show that that a lot of times it's it's the situation. It's, I I I do think he was a good diplomat, but I don't necessarily think that it was the best idea to assign him to Iraq of all things. Whereas Crocker had all this experience in the region. Yeah, we Emma Sky wrote a book where she blasted Hill, and there's been a couple other people who worked in the embassy who just said. He didn't listen to the staff that was there. He wanted to act like as a regular embassy, not one in a country like Iraq that's got all these problems. And that, you know, he just made a whole bunch of serious decisions that alienated the staff at the embassy and played out really bad politically in Iraq. So, you know, if he had a different ambassador, maybe it would have been different, but who knows? But I think that really wrecked everything because Maliki was really, really power hungry. And he, he took on everybody. He took on Sadr, he took on the Sunnis, he took on the Kurds. It was like him against the whole political establishment, which really wrecked Iraq politically. And like I said, the 2010 elections where he came in second to Alawi, it, that doesn't mean Alawi could have formed a government. There's way too many people against him. But the maneuvers Maliki did really made a lot of people angry and, you know, cost him a third term eventually. So if somebody would have been there, another American, maybe it could have turned out differently. Who knows politically? Because Maliki was just, you know, a man upon himself. He was a power in, in Iraqi politics. So who knows? But it could have been different. This is a, uh, this is a, a downer of a podcast, but, uh, but highly illuminating. Uh, so, so, Joel, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Now is your chance to promote your website. Uh, we did it at the beginning, but you should, you should do it again because people should really check out your blog. Yeah, my blog is called Musings on Iraq. I've been writing it since 2008. I post about four or five stories a week, and I've been working really, really hard on it for years and years and years. I think I might be one of the only blogs on Iraq left since 2003. There used to be tons of them, and most of them disappeared. So if you want to learn about Iraq, uh, I suggest you check out my blog. I really work hard on it. Remember, that, 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 is, that is sort of my point. Is like There used to be all this coverage about Iraq, but now, even though the the situation is just as 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 fluid, and in some cases the security, you know, and the security situation is just as as dubious as ever, it's like it's not new anymore. It it sort of ties back to the the very first thing that I said about journalists not having being able to cover long term trends unless there's an anniversary. Um, <laughs> uh, the sad thing is that this conflict's been going on long enough that now we're getting into like the you know the five and the ten and the fifteen year anniversary of various Iraq related dates since we invaded. But um, but there you go. Uh, Joel Wing, thank you so much uh, once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You can find the podcast online by going to my website. It's, it's joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash podcast. Or you can check out the, uh, the podcast on iTunes. You can subscribe for free on the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll have another episode up real soon. As soon as I get back from my vacation, I'm going to London for a week. But once I come back, we will totally have another episode up, uh, and, uh, and, and it'll be great. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.